The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Presently in our series in the book of Genesis, we are looking at the life of Isaac. The life of Isaac. Now, the previous chapter, chapter 25, recalls two important events in the line of Isaac. First, there's God's revelation to Rebekah when he told Rebekah that the elder would serve the younger, meaning the, the twins in her womb, Esau and Jacob, the younger The older, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. And then there's the scene right at the end of chapter 25, which we looked at last week, where Jacob gains the birthright from Esau. And that incident gives us an insight into both Jacob's character and Esau's character, as Brother Mike explained to us last week. And really, that section sets the stage for how we are to understand all of the relation in the rest of the book of Genesis between Jacob and Esau. And now this morning, we come to Genesis 26, verses 1 through 35, which we just heard read. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us this morning, uh, for this passage uh, concerning Isaac, Uh, and concerning uh, uh, Isaac's place uh, in in the line of the covenant. We pray that you would confirm to us uh, the grace of your covenant in our hearts, that we might learn both positively and negatively from this great passage, so that we might honor you with our lips and with our lives. Father, this is your word. And we ask now your Spirit's enlightening work in our hearts, not only that we might understand it, but that we might see the truth for our lives and our time, that we might obey it, being doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. Judge us, we pray, by your word and encourage us all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Genesis 26 tells us perhaps more about Isaac uh, than any other portions of scripture which speak of him. Uh, And in the first half of this chapter, we have three uh, distinct scenes set before us. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we have a description of the time that Isaac was staying in Gerar, his sojourn there, and God's confirmation of the covenant made with Abraham to Isaac. Very important. Very, very important. God's confirmation of the covenant to Isaac. And then in verses 7 through 11, you have Isaac's repetition of the same sin that his father had committed. That his father had committed not once but twice. Then in verses 12 through 17, you see Isaac living amongst the Philistines and blessed by God. While at the same time being envied by those who... Uh, he dwelt with. So let's begin this morning by looking together at those three scenes. First, let's look at verses 1 through 6, where we see Isaac's sojourn in Gerar and God's confirmation of the covenant uh, to him there. 
And we learn an important lesson from this section. And the lesson is this. Don't miss this. The Christian's confidence is drawn from God's unchanging covenant promises, not from our changing circumstances. Amen? And I think we all understand that. I think we all understand that intellectually. We can all say amen to that. But in the midst of difficulty, and as pressures mount, it's very easy to forget that. The Christian's confidence is drawn from God's unchanging covenant promises, not from our changing circumstances. And that lesson is thrust upon us with the very first words of verse 1. Now there was famine in the land. That verse, that phrase out of verse 1, sets the context for everything that happens in the rest of this chapter, but especially for what happens in verses 1 through 17. The circumstance of famine lets us know why it was that Isaac went to Gerar and to Abimelech, the Philistine king, in the first place. The reason he was going there is that Isaac was apparently trying to escape the problem of the famine. It is also entirely possible, especially from what God says to Isaac in verses 2 through 6, that though Isaac was on the way to the land of Abimelech, his ultimate destination was the land of Egypt. In other words, his plan was to stop in Gerar, you know, for a time perhaps, and then make his way to Egypt, which was apparently not so deeply affected by the famine impacting the rest of the region. And then in verses 2 through 5, God reveals himself to Isaac. And remember, this is the first time that God had spoken to Isaac, as far as we know. And it's, it's a very eventful and important passage, because in this passage, it's made clear that the covenant which Isaac is going to receive is not a covenant which is different from the covenant that God had made with Abraham. It is, in fact, the very covenant which God has made with Abraham, now confirmed upon Abraham's successor in the line, Isaac, his only son, Isaac, as God calls him elsewhere. Now, we know from our previous studies, uh, Abraham had many sons, but only one son of promise. Amen? And that, of course, is Isaac. Um, So this is a very important passage. God reveals himself to Isaac, then he reiterates the covenant promise that he had made to Abraham now to him. And at the same time, he gives him warning and direction. So let's look at these verses, verses 2 through 5. Let's follow all of the things that God does in this very brief section. First of all, God gives Isaac a command mixed with a warning. He says to him, do not go down to Egypt, but stay in the land. Now, it's interesting when you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of them were faced with the problem of famine in the land at one time or another. When Abraham was faced with that problem, God did not tell him what to do. And Abraham went down to the land of Egypt, and God blessed him there and brought him out. When Isaac was faced with the problem of famine, God does tell him what to do and what not to do. God tells him not to go down to the land of Egypt. And he didn't. He stayed in the land, and God blessed him. When Jacob 
later on was faced with famine, God told him to go down to the land of Egypt. And God blessed him there and brought him out. It's interesting. With each of those patriarchs, God dealt differently. We're not told why here, but I wonder, especially in this case of Isaac, given his somewhat uh, compliant personality, we can say, uh, whether God did not want him going down into Egypt lest he be influenced by the surroundings. I don't know. In any event, the Lord keeps Isaac from going down to the land of Egypt, and Isaac obeys and stays in the land. Then in verse 3, God gives another command. But this command is linked with a promise. He says, sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and will bless you. And I will be with you and will bless you. Here's where, here's where your sojourn is going to be, Isaac, God says to him. You stay in this land, even though it's in the midst of a famine. I promise you two things. I will bless you. In other words, I'll favor you, and I'll be with you. My presence will be near you. And so, again, Isaac is blessed by the Lord in surprising circumstances. God is good to Isaac. And then if you look again at verse 3, God begins to give a promise to Isaac. I will give you and your descendants this land. Now, that promise is not only a reiteration of the promise that God had already given to Abraham. It is also the reason which God gives to Isaac, or the first part of a two-part reason that God gives to Isaac for staying in the land. I mean, look closely there. Verse 3, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And then at the end of verse 3, he gives the second part of his reason why Isaac ought to stay there in the land. I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now, both of those promises make it very clear that the covenant promises that God is making now uh, to Isaac are the same promises that he has already made to Abraham. This is not a new covenant. This is the same covenant which God had established with Abraham. But God doesn't stop there. Look at verse 4. He goes on to reiterate the covenant promise is to Abraham when he says, I will multiply, uh, or to Isaac, when he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Your descendants will be blessed. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Isaac's descendants are given this covenant promise in order that they would be a blessing uh, to the nations. And then something very surprising is said in verse 5. God says that the reason he is going to do these things is because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham's obedience, God says, is the reason why these blessings are going to be upon Isaac and his descendants. And again, this is a reminder that Isaac has done absolutely nothing to deserve the promises of God. Absolutely nothing. And this, of course, is a picture of grace. This is a picture of grace. Abraham does something, and Isaac gets the blessing. Now, even Abraham 
receives this blessing from God by grace. Even though God attributes the blessing to Abraham's obedience, behind that obedience and behind that blessing, of course, is grace. Calvin has a wonderful comment on this passage. He says that God sometimes, in the Bible, says that we have earned things that he has, in fact, given us by grace. He speaks as though we have earned these things, when in reality, they are still granted to us by grace. So even God's blessings upon Abraham were by grace, as the life of Abraham bears out. Could we really say, could we really say that Abraham had perfectly obeyed God in his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his law? No, of course not. And Moses, the author of Genesis, he lets us know that Abraham failed at certain crucial points. And yet God says to Isaac, I'm going to bless you because your father, Abraham, obeyed. Now that not only tells us something about the overall tenor of Abraham's life, it tells you something about the grace of God. So the theme of God's grace is already flowing through this passage with Isaac. Now, of course, this word in verse 5 is also given to spur Isaac on to obedience as well and to assure him of the certainty of God's blessings. And it shows us an important principle. And that principle is this. Obedience is the proper response to grace. Do we understand that? Obedience is the proper response uh, to grace. And wherever you have anyone justifying disobedience on the basis of grace, you can be sure that that person uh, does not understand uh, the grace of God at all. Abraham received grace. His response was to obey. God now reminds Isaac of that. So that's Isaac's response to God. So that Isaac's response to God, God's grace, will be to obey God, which we see in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. He didn't argue, he apparently in question. Okay, Lord. he settles in Gerar. Now, this whole section, as we said, is in the context of a famine. And as Isaac had to trust God's word, not looking at the famine condition, so also we are called to look to God's unchanging promises and not to look at the changing circumstances in which we are placed. God shows us in Isaac's obedience of staying in the land a pattern for our own conduct when God calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, commentator Derek Kidner has this to say concerning the faith behind Isaac's obedience. The promise given to Isaac was searching to refuse the immediate plenty of Egypt for mostly unseen and distant blessings demanded the kind of faith praised in Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10 and proved Isaac a true son of his father, even though, like Abraham, he was to mar his obedience at once. Isaac then trusted God. He didn't look at the circumstances. He said, yes, Lord, I'm in the midst of famine conditions, but you tell me not to go down to Egypt, so I'm going to stay here in this land. Isaac obeys and trusts God's word, and that's a pattern for all of us. Amen? That's a pattern for all of us. Now, if we look at verses 7 through 11, we'll see, just like Abraham did on a couple of occasions, Isaac... After this great act of faith, great act of trust in God, immediately imitates his father's cowardice 
And he earns the reproach of pagans. Even the Philistines see the inappropriateness of what Isaac has done once he is discovered. And again, we learn here in verses 7 through 11 that God's people, and, and today that's us, Christians, are always liable to temptation to doubt God's providential care. Amen? We are always prone to doubt God's providential care. What what had Isaac just done in verses 1 through 6? He had trusted God. He had trusted in God's providential care, even though his circumstances were difficult. What does he do in verses 7 through 11? He doesn't trust God's providential care, even though his situation was difficult. So one minute he's trusting in God, And the next minute, in the same circumstance, he turns around and he attempts to find a way to help himself. He tries to find a way to protect himself. And in doing so, he violates God's law. When the fear of the men of Gerar overtook Isaac, he sinned and he lied. And you see that in verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife... He said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. So he assumed, you know, they'll want her, so they'll kill me and take her. The same way Abraham, his father, had thought. And, And this is amazing to us, isn't it? It's amazing in the wake of this extraordinary revelation God has spoken to him for the first time. He's heard the voice of God pronouncing Abraham's covenant and blessing upon him. And even in the wake of that extraordinary revelation, Isaac falls prey to unbelief. And that serves as a warning to us, church. It serves as a warning. There's never a time when we can sit back and say, oh, I won't fall prey to unbelief. In fact, when we think that way, that's exactly when we will be likely to fall prey to unbelief. Take heed, right, when you stand, lest you fall. Unbelief can come upon us at any time. It crouches at the door like sin. And and in this crisis of unbelief, Isaac uses the same ploy that his father did. Now, in verses 8 through 11, we see a very interesting response from a pagan king. Let's read those verses. I know we, we heard them read a few minutes ago, but I want to read them again now. Verse 8, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. All right, so Abimelech sees Isaac, and he sees Isaac behaving towards Rebekah in a way that brothers do not behave towards a sister. Don't be misled by the word laughing. It's not like he told her a joke and she laughed. And This, this word is translated in most of the recent translations as caressing. 
Uh, it means showing endearment. You know, you can picture a couple off by themselves, a romantic couple, and they might be laughing together and, you know, touching one another while they're laughing. It, it, it's not the way brothers and sisters. Inter- Do we understand that? It, it's, he, he could see that there was an intimacy here, that the, the, this was not a brother and a sister. This was a husband and a wife. And immediately Abimelech knows what's going on. And he calls in Isaac and he confronts him and he asks, why have you lied to me? And he confronts Isaac for his sin. And, and I'd like you to see just a couple of interesting things here about Abimelech. First of all, notice that Abimelech's respect for marriage shows us the power and the reality of the light of conscience. Think about this. He didn't have a Bible. He had no scriptures. He had no weekly worship service where the the ways of God were proclaimed. But somehow he knew that marriage was a sacred relationship and it ought not to be violated. And he was afraid that his people might violate it. And so he calls in Isaac and he rebukes him. And again, this is a testimony to the power and the reality of the light of conscience. It's a testimony of, of the law of nature and nature's God to the reality of what Paul speaks of in Romans 2.15 when he says that God has written his law on our hearts. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Abimelech. He has no Bible, but he knows that marriage ought to be respected. Now, let me say also that this is a testimony to the depths of our depravity in modern America. Is it not that we, I mean, at least our culture around us, doesn't think that marriage needs to be respected? And even this Philistine, he knew otherwise. What does that say? We're we're worse than the Philistines, amen, here in America today. Notice also that though Abimelech has no Bible, he knows right from wrong. The ultimate source of morality is found in the Creator, in God himself. And that standard of morality, which is set by the very character of our Creator, God, is not only revealed to us in the Bible, Uh, But God tells us in the Bible that he writes it on our hearts. And so even Abimelech knows right from wrong. Notice also that Abimelech, in response to Isaac's wickedness, establishes extraordinary protection for Isaac and Rebekah. He says, look, if you so much as touch them, it's the death penalty for you. And he builds a hedge around them, so to speak, an extraordinary protection. And, and it's, just, it's just so interesting here that uh, God shows the power of his providence by using a pagan king to protect the heir of the covenant, right? God is using this pagan who knows nothing of his grace and of his glory to protect the heir of the promise, promises to Abraham. Church, God is wise. God is surprising. And God is awesome, and God is powerful. Amen? And he knows how to take care of his own and to fulfill all of his purposes. Now, when we focus more on our circumstances than on God's promises, we're certain to go wrong. And that's exactly what Isaac did. And you parents, you fathers especially, hear this on Father's Day. Our example is picked up by our children uh, more quickly than our words. No doubt Abraham had told Isaac, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Now, Isaac was not yet born, 
when Abraham uh, had sinned twice in this way. Um, uh, but he um, uh, certainly will, would have heard about it. And uh, unfortunately, Isaac remembered the example, uh, not the warning. But it's encouraging still, isn't it? As we see God protecting Isaac by this pagan king, we remember that nothing and no one is outside the reach of God's employment in his providential protection of his people. God rules the world for the sake of his people, and God uses even this pagan monarch to protect Isaac and the line of promise. One more thought before we look at the next section uh, in this portion of the chapter. Uh, Now, there's nothing in this passage to indicate this explicitly, and perhaps it's a bit of a speculation, but it's very clear by chapter 27 uh, that Isaac and Rebekah's relationship was not what it was at the beginning. The initial closeness that seems to be there in Genesis 24 is no longer there. Rebekah even plots to have her favorite son, right, Jacob, steal the blessing from Isaac's favorite son, Esau. I mean, that that's that doesn't... Uh, demonstrate a strong marriage relationship. And I wonder, just wonder, if this incident in Gerar could have been the beginning of the distance, which seems to be apparent later in this relationship, which began as a great love story. If so, it is yet another example of the consequences of sin. You know, the consequences of sin tend to just They continue long after the sin ends. Now, sometimes God is gracious in this way, and he spares us ongoing consequences. Other times in his forgiveness and and, and in his grace, he he graces us uh, to uh, bear up under the ongoing consequences. And I mean, I would be surprised here if Rebecca could just look the other way (laughs) on this, right? I mean, her husband was basically... Uh, putting her in a position where to, to protect himself, she may very well have been forced to um, have relations with these Philistine men. Um, and it would surprise me again if there were not consequences of that down the line. Now, moving on, in verses 12 through 17, God blesses Isaac in the midst of famine conditions, but the Philistines envy him. And again, we learn that God often blesses his people in spite of their weaknesses. But in this world, all or, or most, even, you know, probably all, all temporal blessings are mixed. God may give us real blessings in this world, and of course he often does. But in this world which is fallen, church, all those temporal blessings are mixed. Now, what do I mean? By God's blessing, we are told in verses 12 and 13 and in the first half of verse 14 that God caused Isaac to reap 100-fold in his crop in the midst of a famine year. Think about that. He becomes rich in the midst of a famine year. All the other farmers are having bad yields. And Isaac comes rolling in with 100 times the yield that he would have expected. And this was clearly the blessing of God. It is clear not only in this passage, but in the passages to follow, or the the, the verses to follow, that the Philistines understood that that blessing was because of God. 
they recognized that God's hand of favor was upon Isaac. But the Philistines were also envious. And this envy became a real problem for Isaac. They were so envious, in fact, that when they saw Isaac prospering, they just filled up the wells of Abraham, the wells that Abraham's servants had dug years earlier. And this, this, this became a real problem for Isaac because without the wells, he had no place to graze his herds and to water them. And so openly in verse 16, the king asked him to leave. And Isaac does. And, and just remember that, keep that in mind, because that incident is going to come into play in the next part of the chapter, which we'll look at in a moment. So you see an example here of God's real favor towards Isaac. He really does bless him. But that doesn't mean that Isaac has no opposition in this world. In fact, even though God's temporal blessing is real, it does not mean that Isaac is impervious, at least in this case, to the envy of the wicked. And the same is true for us, church. God may bless us with certain things, certain temporal blessings in this life. In fact, I would say if you are a Christian living in America, you are mightily blessed with temporal blessings. Amen. It may not seem that way when we compare ourselves to one another. Well, you go driving along the North Shore of Long Island. And, and, you know, I, I do that despite knowing better because whenever I do that, if I have to go that, I mean, I just, you know, wicked envy. You know, and covetousness, you know, wells up within me, right? Haven't we all experienced that? I mean, we look at that, and and yet that's not the right comparison. If we compare ourselves with 90% of the rest of the world, you know, we are uh, we are the rich of this world, subject to the warnings given to the rich throughout the Bible. Amen. So we need to we need to understand that. Okay. Um, so God blesses us with certain temporal blessings in this life. That does not mean that there will not be corresponding to that certain trials and certain difficulties. That's a pattern pattern we often see in God's word. The Lord's blessings are real, but that doesn't mean they are not mixed in a fallen world. Now, there will be a place, glory to God, where those blessings will be unmixed. Amen? But not here. And may God strengthen us to trust him until we reach that place. Amen? So now as we move into the second half of this chapter, we see Isaac in the midst of both blessing from God and contention with his neighbors. Even as God blesses him, his neighbors are envious. Even as he experiences what are clearly tokens of, of, of God's favor toward him, he is simultaneously experiencing the trials of this life and contention with the world. And I'd like to propose to you that, that the way Isaac handles himself in this passage provides a wonderful pattern and model of Christian living in a world which is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we will be focusing on in the remainder of our time this morning. First, in verses 18 through 22, we see Isaac's struggle with the people of the land. And at that same time, we see God's eventual blessing on him in the midst of those contentions. And I believe that we are reminded as we look at this passage that Christians ought to aim to live at peace and await God's vindication, even as Isaac aimed to live at peace with his neighbors and await God's vindication. So back in verse 15, we saw that the Philistines came and they stopped up the wells of Abraham. 
Now, first of all, this is clearly in violation of the covenant which they had made with Abraham, a covenant of friendship back in chapter 21. And Isaac, very quietly, without objection, uh, without contention, without anger, without confrontation, he redigs these wells. And he names them by their old names. And, and this is not only a sign of respect to Abraham, but it's a message to the Philistines that even though they have forgotten their obligations in the covenant to Abraham, Isaac has not forgotten their obligations in the covenant to Abraham. And so he very gently makes a statement that they are violating the promises that they had made to his father. And then we're told in verses 19 and 21 that Isaac went on to dig new wells. But he meets resistance from the herdsmen in Gerar in verses 20 and 21. And again, we see, they, they claim, no, they, they, these wells are ours. I mean, he dug them. No, but they're ours. This water is ours. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but these wells were everything. Amen? I mean, they they, they represented to Isaac, I mean, th- th- there was, I mean, this was life and sustenance, these wells. And we see Isaac again, not pressing his rights, not demanding his rights, not clinging to what was rightfully his. He doesn't stand on what he could have. He, I mean, he could have said, hey, hey, look, you're in violation of the covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to bring my men over here and we're going to attack you. Just like Abraham attacked the kings who kidnapped Lot. No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't demand his rights here at all. In fact, we are told in verse 22 that he moves even further away from the herdsmen of Gerar. And there he finally finds peace. Peace in the sense of of a lack of, of conflict. Genesis 6, 22. And he moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Very interestingly, Isaac credits his peace to the Lord's providence. And this is a glimpse into the, into the, really the piety of Isaac. Isaac himself had taken steps to keep from being in a contentious relationship with his neighbors. And he could have said, well, finally, my plan worked. I was so kind to these people in not demanding my rights, and I finally got what I deserved. I finally got a little peace. It's about time what I deserve it. That's not Isaac's response. Isaac's response is that the Lord has granted them peace. The Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Matthew Henry says, those that follow peace sooner or later shall find peace. Those that study to be quiet.